to it. Find your way with me in uh, God's Word to Psalm 148. If you don't know where the Psalms are, just take your Bible or maybe the Bible uh, that's under uh, your seat or the seat in front of you and um, kind of just find your way to like the middle-ish and open it up and odds are you'll land in the Psalms. They just happen to be kind of right there in the middle. There are 150 of them and we'll be in the 148th Psalm. This is free information for you. You don't have to pay anything for it today. Uh, The book of Psalms is called Psalms in the plural. There are a collection of 150 of them, songs that were sung, recited, remembered by the people of Israel. The book as a whole is called Psalms, but if you're speaking to a particular one among the 150, you just call it Psalm. So we're in Psalm 148, not Psalms 148, okay? And uh, you'll make your your obsessive compulsive pastor very happy when you refer to them as individual Psalms and not as the whole. Also, by the way, it's the book of Revelation, not Revelations. John only had one vision. That's also free. (laughs) you're welcome there's some there's one other at least one other obsessive compulsive grammar nazi out here in the church who's very glad that i also said that and i don't know who they are but you're also welcome want to let you know this coming week we have a really exciting um, uh, time for our church just to come together and have some fun together. Uh, Saturday night, June 22nd, you've seen the slides. Uh, you'll see the announcement for it on the backside of your worship guide. Uh, Saturday, June 22nd at 5.30 at Sierra Vista Pool, which is just right here on uh, Montano going uh, west from Taylor Ranch Road. Uh, we're going to have a pool party together for a couple hours, 5.30 to 7.30. It's free for everyone who shows up, so come, invite friends, invite your neighbors. Um, Tim Martin, who uh, often plays electric guitar in our worship band, uh, he has a little blues trio that's going to come and play uh, that night as well, and we'll have some pizza and other things. So uh, if you have kids, come. If you don't have kids, come. If you have neighbors who have kids, bring them with you, okay? And we're just all going to have a good time splashing around in the pool and racing down the water slides. I'll go ahead and claim my trophy again this year. I'm kidding. I really am looking forward to it, though. So come, come join us next Saturday, June 22nd, in just six days from today. As I said, we're going to be spending the next several weeks in the book of Psalms. And there are lots of ways that we could make our way through the book of Psalms. There are 150 of them. We could do a psalm a week for three years. The book of Psalms themselves are divided into five different books. You've probably seen that as you've studied or maybe read through the Psalms, different divisions, book one, two, three, four, five. We could walk through the Psalms uh, that way, uh, maybe taking a sample from each of the books and, and trying to stitch together a common theme from each of them. We could just go through and pick all of our favorite psalms, all the ones that get read at uh, weddings or funerals or other occasions, that sort of thing, and just look at those and what they happen to say about God. The way that I've decided to take us through the next several weeks in the Psalms is to, to teach uh, all of us and, and for me to learn all over again the different kinds of Psalms that are in this book. Uh, the, the Psalms were, as we said, a, a collection of songs, uh, poetry really, that the people of Israel would sing when they gathered together corporately. This was their hymnal, if you will. Among them, there are all sorts of different kinds of psalms, different genres of psalms. You know what a a genre is in literature, right? A a love letter is is different than a fiction book. Those are two different kinds of genres of writing. When I pick up a love letter from my wife, because she writes me so many, and, and I read them, 
Uh, I know that it's a love letter because of the way that it's written, the things that she's saying about me. Uh, When I pick up a fiction book, like uh, my favorite fiction book, which happens to be uh, Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card, when I pick that up to read it, I know that I'm not reading a love letter. I'm reading a fiction book. These are different kinds of genres that, that we are already familiar with in the literary world. So also are there different kinds of psalms in the book of Psalms. There are several, and lots of different scholars have tried to divide them up or describe these genres in different ways. But I've found that there are, some say there are as few as maybe five different kinds of psalms. Others have said that there are as many as like 20. Um, I've chosen the the shorter, more concise route uh, of about seven. I think there are about seven different genres, seven different types of psalms uh, within the Psalter. They are these, hymns, songs of thanksgiving, Laments, songs of confidence, songs of remembrance, wisdom songs, and divine kingship songs. And we're going to look at each of these over the next several weeks, and today we're going to begin with hymns. Now before we get into Psalm 148 and and what a hymn is, we need to first understand what kind of literature we're reading in the Bible. Because this is literature, it's it's written words, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, it's inerrant, it's infallible in all that it is saying, it is uh, food for our souls, but it is also literature and some of the best that we will ever read. When you come to the Psalms in your daily study or your regular reading, you first need to understand that what you are reading is poetry. The, the way that you see the Psalms uh, probably laid out in your, in your Bible, it's not in normal paragraph form. There's maybe a, a, a line with another line below it that's slightly indented and, and shifted over a little bit. Just the layout is different. That, that much tells us we're reading something uh, different than like the historical narrative of Genesis or Exodus or Samuel. Hebrew poetry is different from poetry in the English language in that it doesn't have meter and it doesn't have rhyme. It doesn't have a, a rhythm to it, and, and the ends of the lines don't rhyme with each other. That's just how Hebrews wrote poetry. And so it's kind of uh, maybe uh, disorienting to us to read poetry that doesn't necessarily rhyme, but just understand that Hebrew poetry is different than contemporary English poetry. Just uh, by way of example, I've, I've brought Psalm 148 in, in the original Hebrew to read just the first two verses uh, uh, for you and probably butcher it. So those of you who are experts uh, in reading Hebrew, please feel free to judge me later. Just, just listen to, to how the psalmist begins, Psalm 148, verses 1 and 2, in Hebrew, and you'll notice that there's, there's, no, there's really no rhythm, there's no meter, and there's no rhyme here. The psalmist writes, Hallelujah, Hallelujah et Yahweh, Min HaShemayim, Halleluhu Bamaromim, Halleluhu, Call Malachi, Hallelujah, call Tzabaoth. Right? There's no, no discernible rhythm or meter, no, no discernible rhyming there, but, but in Hebrew it's particularly beautiful, isn't it? As terrible as my pronunciation is, I mean, it's just wonderful. The Psalms are, are poetry, and there are two defining characteristics of all of the Psalms in, uh, in the Psalter, the collection of the Psalms that we have, that we need to be aware of and pay attention to as we read the Psalms in our own study. The, the first defining characteristic of Hebrew poetry that we see in the Psalms is this, parallelism. You may want to write that word down, parallelism, which is that in one line of Hebrew poetry, the psalmist will say one thing, and then in the very next line, he'll say essentially the same thing in just a slightly different way. 
If you have your Bibles open and you can turn to Psalm 29 very quickly, we'll see some examples of parallelism briefly. Look at just the first two verses of Psalm 29. The psalmist says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. You see the parallelism there? Ascribe to the Lord heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. The same sort of thing written two slightly different ways. Verse 2, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Psalmists do this all throughout the book of Psalms, saying essentially the same thing in two slightly different ways, one line after the other. And when you understand that that is what the psalmist, uh, psalmists are doing, uh, you'll, you'll begin to have a, a deeper appreciation for the Psalms. The first characteristic of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. The second one is imagery. Those of you who may have been English majors or just enjoy reading good literature and be familiar with what imagery is. Imagery is the use of descriptive or figurative language and, and even symbolic language to speak in concrete ways about ab- abstract principles. So for instance, a, a good picture of, of imagery is in Psalm 119.105 where the psalmist says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, we know that the psalmist does not mean literally that God's word, like if I hold out the Bible, it will shine light in a dark room. That's not what he means, literally, right? We know that. But imagery is to say, your word, God, is a way, it, it is, is like a lamp in the way that it, it sets a course for my life. It shows me where to go. It keeps me from stumbling over sins that I cannot see, temptations that may get in my, my way. Your, your word shines light into my life in a figurative sense. It's been said that a picture can, is worth a, a thousand words, right? To see a picture of, uh, of anything tells you a whole lot more than, than somebody who, who would write maybe pages and pages trying to describe the thing. Well, imagery in the Psalms is much the same way. Painting a picture of something to, to give us a, a better sense of what the psalmist feels or is thinking or is trying to communicate. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. One small image says so much about what God's word is like to the psalmist. So in imagery, we'll have lots of metaphor and simile and things like that. Well, today we turn to the first of the genres that we'll be looking at, and that is hymns. H-Y-M-N-S, hymns. Now, when we think about hymns, maybe the first image that comes to our mind is a a bound book of hymns that says maybe on the spine, Baptist hymnal, and inside has all of your favorites, and you know where all of your favorite songs are. Hymns in a hymnal are hymns in the most generic of terms. They they are, uh, uh, generally speaking, songs of praise or worship to God meant to be sung in a congregational, in a corporate context, uh, corporate context. But in a strict literary sense, hymns are a very specific type of song that we see in the Psalms. Hymns in the Psalms are these, not the hymns that come in books bound uh, in the backs of pews, but hymns as we find them in the Psalms are these, songs of praise to God for who he is and what he has done. That's what a hymn is. It's a song of praise to God for who he is and what he has done. In the Psalms, The hymns, as we encounter them, are songs that are unquestionably upbeat in nature. They're written from the perspective of a life where everything is going well and for times when all is well in the land among the people of Israel. 
Hymns in the Psalms are written by a psalmist who is firmly oriented in their faith and in the person of Almighty God. There is no shaking their faith. There is no question. There is no doubt about who God is or what he has done. And all of it just just flows out in, in exciting praise from the heart and in the words of the psalmist. Hymns in the Psalms can also be uh, distinguished by a very specific structure that they follow. You may want to write this down. The structure of a hymn in the Psalms has essentially three parts. There's first an opening call to praise. There's an invitation uh, for the, the people who are gathering corporately to worship. Then there is secondly a description of the reason for praise. So praise the Lord, all you people. Praise Him for these things. And then third, there's a repeated invitation to praise. Now, for instance, the very shortest of all hymns, and maybe one of the shortest of all the Psalms, uh, an excellent example of a hymn comes to us in Psalm chapter or Psalm 117, where the psalmist says, "Praise the Lord, all nations; extol Him, all peoples." Opening call to praise. Then the reason for praise: For great is His steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. You're supposed to praise Him, people, because His steadfast love for because of His steadfast love toward us, because it is great, and because His faithfulness never ends. And then there's a closing call or a reinvitation to praise. Praise the Lord. Listen to Psalm 117 again and discern the structure. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Now, there are several other hymns for you to consider throughout Scripture. I'll give you just a handful that you can read this week and, uh, and, and apply the things that we'll learn to, uh, to those psalms this morning uh, throughout the course of your week as you study them. The first is Psalm 29. A second hymn is Psalm 47. There's also Psalm 103, 117, which we just read, and 118. But today, together, our study will, the bulk of our study will be in Psalm 148. Let's stand together as we read the word of the Lord. Psalm 148, the psalmist begins, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. And He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth. You great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for His people. Praise for all His saints, for the people of Israel who are near to Him. And everybody said, praise the Lord. God bless His people as we read and study His word. You may be seated. Ah, this is exciting, isn't it? (laughs) I love the Psalms. 
I was an English major in college, and I read a lot of really good literature, a lot of William Shakespeare and John Milton and uh, lots of other people that I can't remember right now because they weren't as important to me. But, but few, few things in the history of the world, few literary works in the history of the world have been quite so captivating and compelling to me as the Psalms especially among them, the hymns, these, these awesome, upbeat calls of praise to the Lord. Let's, let's look at the structure of this hymn in Psalm 148. Let's look at the first call to praise. We said there's, there's normally a, an opening call to praise, a description of the reason for praise, and then a repeated invitation to praise in, in all of these hymns. Let's look at the first call to praise. The first call to praise is an invitation to all things above to praise the Lord in verses 1 through 4. In verse 1, the psalm begins with the, the key word that defines so many of the hymns, which is praise, or praise the Lord. Uh, it begins with that Hebrew word, hallelujah, or, or a combination of two words. Hallelujah, meaning the plural imperative, all of you, praise. And the abbreviated form of the Lord's personal name, Yah. All of you, praise the Lord. It is a corporate call to praise. Did you know that when you're saying hallelujah, you're speaking Hebrew? And you are saying to everyone, all of you, praise the Lord. That's how this psalm begins. And the same phrase is repeated in this psalm in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 7, and 13. At least, it's all over the place. The first call to praise in this psalm is to, as we see, all things above. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Included in this heavenly realm are spiritual beings in verse 2. Praise Him, all angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Angels and hosts are the spiritual attendants of the Lord in His heavenly throne room. The psalmist is calling these spiritual beings that God has created to serve and to worship Him for all eternity. He's telling them, you all, praise the Lord. And then he turns in verses 3 and 4 to speak to these unintelligent parts of the created universe. He says, praise him. These things are also in the sort of heavenly realm, in the heavens up above us. He says, praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Here the psalmist is calling the created order of of the heavens to worship God, to praise God. Sun and moon, shining stars, waters above the heavens. This invitation, we said before, the psalmists use imagery. They use symbolic language to, to represent uh, more concrete realities. The invitation here to the sun and moon and the shining stars does not mean that these parts of the heavenly creation can actually speak or sing or have thoughts of their own. We know that the sun and the moon do not think or speak or, 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 or sing, but by their very existence, these things, sun, moon, shining stars, uh, uh, everything uh, above the earth, in their very existence, they have a a sort of glorifying capacity to reflect the majesty of the Lord. I've not yet met a person who can go out on on a dark, clear summer evening, look up at the stars in the sky, the the Milky Way, and say, meh. Right? Even people who don't believe in the existence of God or or God who created the universe, even they can look up people like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, one of the maybe foremost physicists and and very personable uh, uh, atheists, if you will, uh, in the world today. Even he has a sense of wonder and awe when he looks to the heavens. 
because they glorify God. Whether atheists recognize it or not, that's why they are awe-inspiring. They point us to a creator. And so the psalmist is saying, everything in the heavens that reflects the, the glory of the Lord, all of you exist to praise him. So do what you're made to do. Bring praise and honor and glory to the Lord. That's his first call to praise. And then he tells the heavens and the heavenly beings why they are to praise him. We get the first cause of praise, which is in verses five and six, the creative power of the Lord. Why ought the sun and moon and angels and stars and and all things above the earth, why ought they to praise the Lord? Because he has power to create them. The cause of praise, the reason for praise in the heavens are are kind of twofold. We see verse in verse 5 that these things in the heavenly realm are to praise the Lord because they have been created by the word of his command. Psalmist says in verse 5, Let them praise the name of the Lord for, because he commanded and they were created. The very speech of God has creative power that must be obeyed by the things that are created by it. They have no choice. The sun, the moon, the stars had no choice but to come into being when God said, let there be light. Heavenly beings, heavenly aspects of creation cannot refuse to be created and they exist at the pleasure and command of the Lord because he is omnipotent. He is all powerful. They are to praise the Lord because they've been created by the word of his command. And as verse six shows us, they are to praise the Lord because he not only created them by his powerful word, but because he sustains them by his word. Not, not only did he bring them into being, but he holds them in their existence by the power of his word. The psalmist says, he gave a decree, that is, he, he gave an order from his mouth, and it shall not pass away. What are we to make of this decree? What does it mean that God gave a decree and it shall not pass away? Well, I think there are at least a couple of references in, in other places of scripture that help us to understand what the psalmist is saying. There's at least, uh, on one hand, a reference to the declaration on, on the several days of creation that when the Lord spoke things into existence and they came into existence, that he called them good. He, he gave a decree, let there be light. And there was light. And the Lord saw it. And it was good. There also seems to be a reference to Genesis chapter 8, verse 22, when after the great global flood that God brought Noah and his family safely through, God said to Noah as he exited the ark, he said in Genesis 8:22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God said to Noah, so long as there is still an earth, I will keep things going. I have given a decree and it shall not pass away. And that is why all all of the heavenly realm of creation is to praise the Lord. Because by his word, he brings them into existence and by his word, he sustains them and keeps them going. But there's still a similar affirmation of the decree of the Lord that appears to us in the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, verses 35 through 7, this is in the context of when God uh, gives the promise to Jeremiah of a new covenant where he'll write his law on the hearts of the people that he will make his home in their hearts. There in Jeremiah 31, verses 35 through 37, the Lord affirms that if the sun or the moon or the stars or the fixed order of the universe should ever pass away, so also would his new covenant promise to put the law in the hearts of his people. God says, if the, if the sun stops shining or the moon falls out of the sky or, you, don't, or you, you fail to see the stars in the heavens, then my covenant has been broken. That's a big promise from the Lord, isn't it? 
For him to say, I will keep my promise, and here's how you'll know if I break it, the sun will quit shining. All things in the heavens will fall to pieces. This is God's way of, of saying, my covenant will never pass away. Because I've spoken these things into existence and I keep them, I sustain them by the power of my word. And so just as I have kept the heavenly order of of creation in its place and doing what it does, so also will I keep my promises. There's a clear connection between the establishment of the universe and God's covenant relationship to his people in Israel. So we have this first call to praise, all things above. And, and, and why all things above are to praise God? Because he created them, and he is powerful to create them. So then, Christian, when you read Psalm 148, and you read this call to praise of all the things in the heavens and the reason for their praise, when you look to the heavens then, when you go outside tonight or this afternoon and you, you bask in the glory of the sun or you, you look at the stars in the night sky, whenever you look to the heavens and see the created order of the world there, you give praise to Jesus, the creator and sustainer of all those things. Amen. Right? The sun, the moon, the stars in the sky, all that we can see in the heavens above us are meant to be a created and creative call to praise within God's people. When we look at the night sky, we don't just see specks of, of light on a, on a black curtain of, of sky, but we see the handiwork of a creative and loving and powerful God. Yeah. And not just God in a generic sense, but, but God the Son, Jesus Christ, who is the creator and sustainer of all things. And you're looking at me and you're saying, Pastor, that doesn't make sense. I'm supposed to look at the heavens and praise Jesus for creating them? I thought God was the one who created those things. Well, let me point you to a few passages of Scripture this morning that teach us that that Jesus, the Son of God, is one with the Father. He is distinct from the Father, but they are in eternal and perfect uh, union with one another and, and with the Holy Spirit, this doctrine of the Trinity that we understand. Colossians 1, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae verses 15 through 17, a passage that many think was probably an early Christian hymn, goes this way. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Did you catch that? By him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. Jesus is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. You see in Colossians 1, 15 through 17, Jesus is both creator and sustainer. The same as God who is worshiped in Psalm 148, his creator and sustainer. John, uh, in his gospel, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, John says, in the beginning was the word. This is his way of speaking of, uh, about the Son of God who put on flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in the beginning, with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's John's way of saying, if anything exists, it's because Jesus said so. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The author of Hebrews begins his, his letter to Jewish believers this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Dear friends, when you, like the psalmist, look to the heavens, you praise Jesus, the creator and sustainer of all things. That's the first call to praise in Psalm 148. But wait, there's more. The psalmist in Psalm 148 breaks the pattern of how hymns normally go. Normally there's an invitation to worship, a description for worship, and a repeated call to worship at the end. But here he gives two calls to worship, two reasons for worship, and then one concluding uh, invitation to praise. So now let's look at the second call to praise. The first call to praise is to all things above. The second call to praise, look at verse 7, is to all things below, all things on earth. Verse 7 says, praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. The psalmist goes through a list here of, like he did previously, a bunch of inanimate and non-human parts of creation, doesn't he? Sea creatures, oceans, fire, hail, snow, mist, stormy wind, all of which do what the Lord commands, right? Likewise, mountains and hills, he says, you all praise the Lord, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things, flying birds. In this sense, all the created order of the earth is being summoned to praise by the psalmist. Uh, I think a little bit of uh, St. Francis of Assisi, who, who was known for preaching to, uh, to nature, to creation. He would, he would uh, say things, uh, uh, call different creatures like brother squirrel and sister dog. And he was, he was a little bit weird, but he loved the gospel and he loved Jesus. And, and, and he saw it as the point of his life to declare the gospel to all creation, whether they could really understand what was going on or not. The psalmist kind of embodies that same spirit, doesn't he? All you things, sea creatures, deeps, mountains, hills, ants, all of you praise the Lord. They, like the unintelligent parts of the heavens, are to praise the Lord by the very nature of their existence. Their very very movement and moment of existence is evidence to the psalmist and to us of the creative and sustaining power of the Lord. When, when we look to the east to see the, 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 the horizon of the Sandia Mountains that just rises up uh, uh, on the east here, we, we ought to see that as a, a declaration of the glory of the Lord. The Sandia Mountains, though unintelligibly, declare the glory of the Lord. When we look to the west and we see the West Mesa and, and, and the Three Sisters volcanoes that are, that are out there and just this, this beautiful, vast mesa with shrubs and other things that is not so beautiful to other people, but if you live in New Mexico, you know the beauty that's there. And the sun, the way that it sets uh, in the west and just lights the sky in pink and orange and all these things. We look at that and we say, God is to be praised. These things are shouting the glory of the Lord. When I look at my dog, Barney, and the way that he greets me when I come home, he's just so excited to see me. He is almost like my best friend. 
I see them just like, God, you are so good that you made this dog to love me, even though I'm, I'm such an idiot at times. And, and I don't know hardly how to take care of him, but this dog loves me. This is just so great. God, thank you for the things that you've created. All creation, everything on the earth brings praise to the Lord. Verses 11 and 12, however, shift that attention away from the unintelligent beings to the crown and glory of God's creation, God's created order, to humanity. The psalmist starts in the heavens. He moves to the earth. And then he goes a step further to the hearts of the people who were created in the image of God to know, love, and worship him. He says, kings of the earth. He starts with the highest people in authority. Kings of the earth and all peoples. Princes and all rulers of the earth. Young men and maidens together. Old men and children. Is there any, any one person, any one human being, any, any category, any demographic of person that the psalmist has left out here? No, he's not. In these verses, all people of all the earth are called to praise the Lord from the very, very great, the kings of the earth, princes and rulers, to the very, very low, the very, very humble, young men and maidens, old men and children, all peoples. Beyond that, there's this, this call to all humanity and not merely just to the people of God. You see that phrase in verse 11, all peoples. Praise him, kings of the earth and all peoples. This is a, a phrase that means literally all nations, every ethnic group, every geopolitical boundary, every sovereign, self-governing group of persons is to praise the Lord. This noun is plural in number. There's more than one. All peoples, plural. And it's inclusive. All peoples. Meaning that it must intend more than just the people of Israel who are being called to praise. The psalmist is saying, everyone in the earth all over the, the world around has been created to worship and praise and glorify God who created them in his image. That's what we've been made for. Whether you're a, a king, whether you're a, a president or a, a, a head of state, or you're a person living, in, living in, in poverty and no one knows who you are and you've lived out the entire several decades of your life in the shadows feeling uh, unseen and unattended by anyone, whether you're a king or you're a pauper, the purpose of your life is to praise the Lord. Yeah, amen. And that is the invitation, the open invitation to all people, which is to praise the Lord. This is a second call to praise all things on the earth, culminating with finding its climax in the invitation of inviting people to actively give praise to the Lord. And then we have the second cause of praise. The first cause of praise, or first call to praise was to the heavens. And the first cause of praise was because God created them. He gave a decree and they won't pass away. The second call to praise is everything on the earth, climaxing with human beings. And then we have the second cause of praise, the reason for worshiping God, which is that the Lord saves his people. Verses 13 and 14 teach us this. Why are all creatures of the earth, why are all peoples of the earth to praise the Lord? The psalmist finds two reasons. First, verse 13. The Lord's name alone is exalted and his majesty uh, is above the earth and heaven. This is a poetic way of saying that there is no other God but Yahweh. I am the Lord God of Israel. His name is the only one worthy of exaltation because he is the only true God. 
Likewise, and in similar fashion, His majesty as a function of His nature, God is majestic because He is God, His majesty is greater than all earth and heaven. That makes sense, right? He created all earth and heaven, so naturally He cannot create anything that is greater than Himself. So His majesty is far greater than even the majesty of the sun in the sky, the stars at night. In the same way that a mirror reflects the light that shines upon it, the image in the mirror does not carry the substance of that which it reflects. When you look into a mirror, you are not seeing yourself. You are seeing a reflection of yourself. The reflection in the mirror is not as good, not as real as the body uh, that, that is imaged by it, you see? In the same way, uh, the, in this way, the, the, the object always surpasses its reflection by its very nature. And so God, who is the highest, greatest, most supreme, only eternal being, far surpasses his creation in majesty and in glory. It's just how it works. He's to be praised because his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. And secondly, he is to be praised in verse 14. Because he saves his people. He has raised a horn for his people, praise for his saints, for Israel who are near to him, the psalmist says. He has raised a horn for his people. Here again, we have imagery. We have a picture of something that symbolizes something else. That word horn in the, in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, is in the simplest of terms, a reference to a ram's horn. It's kind of a generic Generic term, ram's horn. He's raised a ram's horn for his people. What in the world does that mean? Well, horn can have lots of other implications or, or symbolic meanings in the Old Testament. It can be one, an instrument of anointing. You take a, a horn from a, a ram, it, uh, you, you empty it, you hollow it out, you fill it with oil, and then with the oil that's in that horn, you, you pour it over the head of one who's been chosen as king or is being anointed for a, a particular purpose. A horn could be used as a musical instrument. Uh, either to make music, but, but more than likely uh, to be used to communicate in times of battle. You blow a horn or a particular uh, pattern uh, of, of uh, sounds from the horn and, and the whole army can hear and they know what to do, what, what sort of battle formation to take by what sound is coming from the horn. Sometimes horns are blown in victory after battle. Horns can be symbols of political power in the Old Testament. Uh, a way of speaking about uh, someone who uh, may be a king or a person in authority over a particular nation. But in this sense, a horn is being used as a symbol of salvation or symbol of a savior. Horn can be a, a, an image for one who is victorious over an enemy, one who brings salvation to his people. And that is what the psalmist is saying here. We, we could almost read the psalm this way. He has raised up a savior for his people. Or he has raised up salvation for his people. Praise for all his saints. This picture of a horn meaning salvation or, or a savior, I think finds its fullest expression, its greatest and, and most specific fulfillment in terms of the savior that God will bring for his people and for all people in Luke's gospel, chapter 1, verses 68 and 69, there, Zechariah, this old man who's the father of John the Baptist, when John is born, Zechariah has a, a prayer of praise to God. And in that prayer, he says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people 
And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, the king David. Zechariah, at the birth of his son John, knowing that John would be a a forerunner, a, a way preparer for Jesus, who was the Messiah, the promised king of Israel, John can, uh, Zechariah can look at the birth of his son John and already see that God is raising up salvation for his people. And that's part of his, his praise. When John is born to old Zechariah and Elizabeth, Zechariah praises the Lord, not because the Lord has given him a son, but because of who is coming, who the Lord is sending after his son, which is Jesus, the King, the Messiah. It would seem then that the cause of praise of the people, he's raised up praise for all his nations, Psalm 148, 14. The cause of praise is the salvation and the deliverance that only the Lord can provide for his people. For the Old Testament Jews, this would call to mind all kinds of moments of salvation that the Lord had already worked in their history. Release from slavery, deliverance from slavery in Egypt, the conquering of the promised land, the rise of David as king, their return from exile in Babylon according to the discipline of the Lord for their idolatry as he brings them back to himself. It's tempting to read this psalm with a forward-looking hermeneutic. What I mean by that is it's tempting to read Psalm 148 and look forward to Jesus, to interpret this in light of who Jesus is and who he will be, a horn of salvation for the people of Israel and for all peoples. And dear friends, that is the right way to read Psalm 148, to read it with an eye toward Jesus, seeing that horn that the Lord raises for his people as the same horn to sprout for David from Psalm 132, 17 and, and equated with the king who would reign on the throne of David forever from 2 Samuel 7, the horn that, of salvation that has been raised up for his people in the house of the servant David that Zechariah prays for. Psalm 148 calls all creation, all the universe in the heavens and on the earth to praise Jesus, the Savior of all people. Man, I love this psalm. So dear Christian, when you read Psalm 148 and you see this image of of God raising a horn up for his people, praise for all his saints, you you should read it looking to Jesus. You should read it and and praise God and and, and see as the, the greatest purpose for anyone living their life to bring praise to God by placing faith in Christ the King who gave his life his sinless life on a cross, bearing the penalty for your sin and mine, and who was raised from the dead by the power of God, never to die again, raised in glory as the eternal Son of God, who now sits and reigns at the right hand of the Father. That is the King that Psalm 148 is speaking about. That's the horn of salvation that Psalm 148 is calling us to praise God for. So then, Christian, when you read Psalm 148, I think your response, our response to this psalm ought to be then, one, to obviously praise the Lord for giving us salvation in Christ. But then secondly, to look on every person that you see, every person in this room, every child in your home, every neighbor next to you and and across the street, every barista you happen to see every Tuesday morning when you go to Starbucks for your almond milk latte, Look on every person as one who has been made to praise the Lord and to know the salvation that he has given. Here then, we Christian readers are taken to, I think, the the vision of the heavenly throne in the resurrection where John sees in his book, uh, his vision, Revelation chapter 7. 
He says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This vision of people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and, 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 and nationality, every language all around the world standing before Christ in eternity, worshiping Him, is, is the, the fulfillment of, of the invitation to praise from Psalm 148. Kings of all the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men, maidens together, old men and children, not a single person is accepted. All of you are invited. All of you are summoned. All of you are encouraged to praise the Lord because he saves his people. And in eternity, we will be with a multitude that no one can number from every nation, tribe, people, language, no one accepted, everyone welcomed, all summoned, encouraged to praise, standing before the lone, the throne and before the Lamb, who's, who, who, and we will be clothed in white robes and all crying out with one loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Isn't this awesome? Woo! Guys, I love, this is why the Psalms are so great. Because the Psalms are God's word to his people, teaching us how to praise him for who he is. Man, this is so good. Do you see how good? Let me, let me just detour for a second. This is how good God is in his word. That he gives us words to praise him with. That far surpass our own ability to put into words why we ought to praise him or why he is praiseworthy. Aren't the Psalms awesome? Aren't these hymns a gift of God to us to teach us how to praise Him? This horn that is raised up for the people of Israel and that is worthy of all the praise of the people, of all peoples, both lofty and lowly, is the one and only Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David, who takes on flesh in His incarnation to give His life as an atonement for the sins of all the peoples of the world. His is the name that is above every name. His is the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess his lordship to the glory of God the Father. Dear friend, you were made to praise the Lord. Amen. You were made to give him glory. This is the very purpose of your life. There is nothing greater to live for there's nothing greater you can do with your life than to praise God who made you in his image and to give him glory. This is the very mission of our church. You see it on the front of your worship guide. We exist to glorify God by making disciples, by calling everyone to follow Jesus as Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. The mission of our church is to bring praise and honor to God by leading others to know this Jesus, the Son of God, the creator and sustainer of all things, the one who became human and who died for our sins and who was raised from the dead to rescue us from sin and the grave and to give to us real lives of spiritual abundance as we praise his name forever. So let me close with a renewed invitation to praise. All you people, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. The way the psalmist closes this psalm is just so perfect, isn't it? He gets us all riled up about all the good reasons to praise God. And then he says, get to it. Praise the Lord. Get on your feet. 
Shout to the heavens, sing to him, bring praise to his name, those of you who have been saved by his grace, and take that message to those who need to hear it as well. Dear friends, let us pray. And as we do, prepare our hearts to praise the Lord more this morning.